Yeah, my first uh, my first computer was actually pre-Atari. So it's a TI-994A. And uh, I was the last batch at Berkeley that had to uh, that had to submit their homework using punched cards. For the show. <laughs> yeah, I was just at work the other day and I was sharing that. And then one person raised their hand and said, you know, what's punched cards? Said, oh, oh we, we can't be friends. <laughs> On today's episode of the Data Driven Podcast, we have a very special guest, Chris Nguyen, the CEO and co-founder of iTomatic. In our interview with Chris, we delve into the exciting world of industrial AI use cases, explore the challenges faced by manufacturers, and discuss the ever-important topic of teaching AI common sense. Additionally, we explore the disconnect between Silicon Valley and the manufacturing industry, shedding light on the unique perspectives and expertise that each brings to the table. So sit back, relax, and join us on this fascinating journey into the world of industrial AI and manufacturing. Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging fields of data science, artificial intelligence, and data engineering. Today I have with me Christopher uh, Nguyen. When? Uh, sorry I, uh, for the pronunciation, he'll correct me, I'm sure. And uh, he's a fascinating character. We talked a little bit in the virtual green room um, how um, he has a PhD in electrical engineering and he knows how everything works from the electrons all the way up. And uh, now that's what I call full stack. So welcome to the show, and um, um, how are you doing today? Very well, thanks, Frank. It's a it's a beautiful day here after you know a lot of rain, but uh, right. we finally get some sunshine here in California. Yeah, and after some snow, I uh, remember seeing. So. Oh my goodness, snow <laughs> came down. I guess maybe twenty five hundred feet. Yeah, the kids. Wow. Uh, were hurried to drive up the hills and, and make uh, snowmen, such as they are. <laughs> That's cool. So you went to Berkeley and Stanford. So you've been in the Valley for a while. And um, I don't want to talk about age, but uh, you did say that you were one of the last people at uh, in university that used punch cards. Um, That's right. The last, the last batch at Berkeley that actually submitted punch cards and had to deal with the, you know, debugging through all of that physical process. Wow. So for the kids that are listening, punch cards are um, they slightly predate me, um, but uh, I remember whenever I would complain to my computer science professors about any of us would complain about the assignments. We would always get the, you know, the we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways, talk and say. You're not doing this on punch cards. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll use that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Feel free to use that one. Um, but um, so you um, you're the uh, the CEO and um, co-founder of AI Automatic. I, I know I I totally butchered that pronunciation. So so tell us about the company, how to say it, and and what it is you do. Well, iTomatic deals in an area we call industrial AI, and, and that is to both describe the industry we're in, you know, uh, as well as the, the nature of the technology. Um, so you can think of it as a, the physical industry. When we think about manufacturing, avionics, automotive, and so on, they're, they're very different culturally and, and technology-wise from the world, the digital world that I came from, and, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, and so on, you know, where we deal with data in, data process, data out, you know, uh, you know I bet a lot of your, your podcast, this being data driven, you know, traffic's in a lot of that. 
And uh, in terms of the technology difference, uh, we've learned that a lot of the machine learning techniques, right, the ideas are the same, but for example, machine learning, as you know, requires a lot of data, particularly label data. If you want to learn about uh, predicting failures, you must have had a lot of those failures, uh, you know, in, in equipment and so on. But it turns out in the physical world, things do not move uh, as fast as they do in the digital world. And, and there's not a lot enough labels for, for machine learning. Uh, so the technology is all about how do we overcome that, right? And, and, and in a very interesting way, we sort of learned that hard lesson. Uh, my team and I, we, we had a previous company that was acquired by Panasonic. And so we learned, we basically hit the wall after the acquisition, you know, financially it was fine. But then, you know, when we come to try to solve the physical world's problems, uh, we, we, we ourselves, the problem that I just described to you is not abstract. We, we hit those walls and then we have to figure out how to solve it. And it turns out the key is, is domain expertise, you know, human knowledge. Interesting. So, so like, what are the particular walls? I, I, I can imagine it. Because in in my career, I've worked with, you know, primarily in software companies now, but um, whenever I did have customers who did touch manufacturing, the, I think you nailed it. The culture is very different. Like the, their, um, and, and their pace of how they do things is very different, which if you're on a quarterly sales uh, quota, <laughs> it's always frustrating. Yeah. Um, but so, so like what, and I, and I get it, right? Like, you know, if, if you make a mistake in code, right, you can fix it pretty easily. But if you have a mistake that is deployed on a factory floor, that is not an easy fix. Is that, that, is that is, kind of the root of it? Actually, that is exactly, that actually more profound than, than, than most people realize. And, and I kind of went native, right? I came from Silicon Valley digital world and, and I came to at least sympathize, if not empathize with that challenge, because in, in, in automotive, in avionics, you, you make a mistake, somebody dies, right? A lot of people right. die. Uh, so it's not the same as, Hey, you know, Frank clicked on the wrong ad. Let's, let's re-optimize that. Um, so, so, you know, we, you know, when I say we here, I, I include you and, you know, it's sort of the Silicon Valley, uh, consciousness. We tend to look at that industry and say, oh, those guys are so slow, you know, uh, so, so you know, outdated and so on. Uh, but there are a lot of smart people working there and, and they're doing it, uh, doing, doing things that, that, that the job requires or the use cases require. And, and really, you know, we are sort of catching up to that now that we're seeing, for example, you know, ChatGPT coming out and AI might take over the world and destroy us all. And so on. people are now saying, hey, we, we probably should build in some safety features. <laughs> and, and, and it's like, you know, the, 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 the industry, industrial people are saying, well, we've been doing that for 100 years. Right. No, I mean, that's a good point. Like people in industrial people are used to it being people's lives in the line, like if it's avionics or automobiles. And I think this is something that and maybe you could speak on this because, you know, you, you're you're really at the, the crossroads of these two worlds where that was really my first experience of realizing that Silicon Valley does not function like other places like in, in good and bad ways right like it's not a judgment it's a you know when when um when i was doing a lot of work i'm, I'm in the dc area when i was doing a lot of work where they were bringing in silicon valley people into kind of the dc government tech space i mean that was a culture clash right like mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and um it, it's interesting to kind of see like you know when people's lives are on the line 
it, it requires an, an extra level of discipline, and that extra level of discipline comes at the cost of speed, which I think is when you kind of step back and scratch your chin and ponder it, like it, mm-hmm. it's totally reasonable. But like from the outside, like, you know, you have one kind of culture that's used to going 100 miles an hour and the other one is used to walking very carefully. <laughs> um, well, you know, and, you know, move, move fast and break things, right? Right. Uh, to, up to the point where you start breaking democracy. Right, right. Well, even Facebook had a walk back. Once they got to a certain size, they had a that's, walk back right. that moved fast that's and right. break things. So it's, 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 it's it, there's probably and a... Silicon Valley wasn't always like that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, uh, that, that is to say, Silicon Valley has always been at the forefront, you know, since, since the 60s. But it's, always, it's not always been such fast cycles that is enabled by, by, by it being purely software. I mean, we were manufacturing, uh, you know, I've been here since 1980, right? And, and it was a manufacturing valley. And it was a semiconductor valley, you know, and, and it was uh, software and then software moves to consumer and so on. So the consumerization of things, right? We got more and more cyber. And then Mark Andreessen famously said, you know, software is eating the world. Uh, but recently he also said, hey, it's t- it's time to build again. Right. Right. Well, I think, you know, you were right. Like, you know, there's been a lot of, I think, realization that if the majority of chips are made in you know, overseas. And I think the pandemic is kind of really, you know, I think the average American had probably never heard the term supply chain uh, up until there were problems with supply chain, you know? That's right. And uh, you were telling me that, um, so so I want to know more about, because uh, one of the descriptions I read was that you you take kind of language models. Is that primarily the, the, the work that, that your company is in, or is it kind of all AI? around manufacturing so so that's sort of the exciting thing we've been doing this for quite some time and now people it's much easier for me to explain what we do now that the world sees chat gpt right uh so so let me me come back to the to to the point where i said the solution to this data wall right Uh, and by the way we call it the small data wall and and when we say small I'm, i'm saying that the labels for machine learning uh, don't exist in sufficient quantities, right? And so it turns out if you try to solve a problem, you say predictive maintenance. And that that precisely is, tell me the probability that this compressor is going to fail in two weeks, right? So that, that's the sort of the precise formulation. And it turns out machine learning cannot do that without enough of those failures in those conditions with that workload in that even sometime in that climate and so on. Uh, for the last few years, and 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 that is more often true. We have a small data problem in in this industry than not. Uh, and then you turn around and you and, and then you know the the expert, the main expert engineer that said, well, if you just look at this temperature that's been rising for the last two weeks, while the pressure has remained constant, that means the compressor is probably going to be conking out pretty soon. Then you realize, wait a minute, where how how do you know that, right? And the knowledge that is inside that expert's brain, that mind, is accumulated over 30 years of experience across different equipment, even from school, physics, and so on. It is not in that data. I don't care how much sensor data you collect, it's not there. So the question becomes, okay, how do we incorporate this? And of course, in the past, you would use things like expert systems and, you know, say, give me a bunch of rules, right? Um, but in the past, past few years, with the advent of, of large language models, uh, so we've been working, uh, you know, e- even before people knew about about these things, 
Uh, it turns out to be uh, architectural. I break it down into a two-step process. Number one is translating that, what we call the un unstructured knowledge, right? You and I are talking in a very unstructured you know, form, right? Uh, and then you, 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 you use a large language model to translate it into a structured form. And, Interesting. Uh, yeah. And, and the second step is you take that structured form and you apply it to very formal uh, software engineered architectures that combine that knowledge together with the sensor data. And then you can make, you know, very effective predictions. We, we've done a lot of, you know, studies and, and so on. There's, there's what we call the knowledge gap. That is, if you build a machine learning model, you can get accuracy at a certain rate, right? 20, 30%. And then you apply your domain knowledge to it. Suddenly you can do predictions 60, 70%. So that's fascinating. And, and we quantify that as well. Interesting. So how do you get the information out of the person's brain? Do you interview them? Do they write a paper or do you, right. do you point, do you point your language model at research or? Well, in, in the past, you basically have two people sit down, you know, essentially one software engineer and one domain expert and, it's, it's, you know, you know, figuratively sit down, but they really engage you know, for six months and so on and say, you know, teach me everything or tell me everything you want to. And then the software engineer would essentially translate that into code. Right? Sounds like requirements gathering, but you've automated it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so requirements gathering, but also a lot of the uh, requirements are sort of the business requirements coming down. But to, in order to solve that business problem, you cannot do it only with a software guy. You need the domain expert that say, you know, here's the physical equation that you need to encode. You know, here's the relationship that you need to know and so on. Right. So exactly as you say, we've, we've essentially using large language model to automate that to the point that it is structured form. Uh, I, I should draw a very clear line because there's this there's this uh, hype today, right? I mean, you know, ChatGPT is the fastest product to get to a million users in history in five days, right? Um, people, so now we're talking not just the, initi the uninitiated, but people who are now familiar with it. I should say that ChatGPT or large language models cannot by themselves solve the problem. Right. So it's not like you can go to that, you know, give it a bunch of knowledge and say, okay, now teacher or expert, please tell me how, you know, how to solve this. What they can do is they can translate from unstructured to structured. And then you still need a whole set of formal architectures on the, on the, on the backside to, you know, for which the structured knowledge now can be encoded. Right. So it's a, it's a two phase process. Interesting. So what does that process look like? Like generally kind of what, what does that look like? You know, do you, you know, say I have a machine that makes widgets and do, 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 does a person interview another person that interview is captured and then fed into a language model and then kind of processed or is it? Well, I'll, give you, I'll give you one of multiple examples because the okay. architectures are the key, but the fundamental basic idea is how do you combine this, the knowledge that is now structured with machine data and then and then do a better prediction than than machine data alone or even knowledge alone right either one alone um, think of a, a use case where you have a, a computer vision model right let's say you're trying to classify 
damage to a vehicle, right? Let's, let's say car rentals and so on. And this is a, it's a real use case, but you can translate to that many other uh, use cases. So of course the machine learning guy would say, okay, give me a lot of examples of, of damage, right? And, and, and then, you know, various meta data and so on. Um, uh, and then I'll build a model, right? And, and uh, the most advanced approach is actually, you know, few shot learning where you actually bring to that table a model that already knows about images of cars so it so then it can see differences and so on and then you give a few examples of, of, of car damage and so it can get to a certain accuracy and and as you know any model not even machine learning model any any prediction has false positives and false negatives right and so you tune one to the other you tune to some level that so at some point it becomes zero sum that is, if you want to have more false <clears throat> or fewer false positive, you're going to have more false negative and, and vice versa. Um, and then somebody comes along and say, well, you know, uh, I know that 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 car rental damage uh, is a pretty, pretty correlated to not caused by but correlated to driver's age. Right. Mm -hmm. in the example that I've given you driver's age is not in that image. Right. And so that's a simple piece of almost common sense knowledge. You can intuitively say, see that if on the other side, just before it outputs the prediction that, that, okay, there's damage or there's no damage, it then adjusts that probability for the driver's age. Then it stands a reason that that could be a more accurate model. Interesting. Uh, and then if you could sort of, if you build that over a lot, you know, I know that this area, this zip code, you know, tends to be, you know, more so, and, and this kind of car or cars return at this time, things like that, right? A lot of that used to be thought of as feature engineering, right? But, but what we've done is we've automated the collection of that knowledge and then also the encoding of it into these architectures. Interesting. So it's almost like it's almost like an ensemble model in oh the sense. Goodness, yes. <laughs> okay. That's fascinating. Yes. There is an ensembler at the at the right hand side. Absolutely. Interesting. So I guess in some ways, right, like that it kind of mirrors how people think, right? Like, oh well, you know, is that a damage? Is it a bad picture? But you know, you would you returned it like, you know, you rented the car and you're 21 and, you know, Mardi Gras. <laughs> you rented exactly. the car like right around Mardi Gras and you're in yeah. Louisiana. Like I can I can see that being like, oh, yeah, this is totally damaged. Right. Like, it's yeah, like, your example of Mardi Gras. Exactly. Right. So a lot of like in the process of doing some of these things, uh, some work that we've done, uh, the, the models completely fail uh, in the context of COVID. Right. right, like and and and, but the human expert knows, right? At least how to adjust for it. Then the challenge is only how do you how do you take advantage of that? So at a very at a higher level, it's simply to our approach is like take advantage of everything at, available to you, right? And, right? and providing our customer with the tooling to do so because intuitively it makes perfect sense, right? It's just it's not been possible before. Interesting. So. Because, I, I mean, with COVID, and this is interesting, too, like, so how do you handle kind of, you know, let's use the example of COVID, right? Like where you had economic models, right? Economic forecasts, right? Obviously, it's been 100 years since we had anything of this scale, right? The economy is very different today than it was in, in the 1900s. Um, what 
And there were a lot of there were a lot of economists that predicted, you know, this type of gloom and doom, that type of gloom and doom, right? Not all of them were right. You know, one thing that you know is kind of um, came across my desk today was you know housing prices in the U.S. are going to have a bad time. <laughs> but part of that is is that you know they're going to drop. I think the exact number was say twenty percent, right? But also because of the pandemic, housing prices and low interest rates kind of had a artificial spike up. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know how many economists uh, kind of predicted that the housing, because of the pandemic, uh, housing prices would go through the roof, right? And so ultimately what I'm asking is like, how do you handle, do you have different models because, or is it you, you focus on very industry, very, the problem space is so specific that this is not really a great analogy, well, the analogy is good, but I think it's also true that the, the domain specificity is what <clears throat> enables uh, accuracy. And, and at, at the end of the day, it's advantage, right? You know, one company that has this is going to perform better or, you know, give better service than the company that does not. Right? Technology right. is always about that competitive edge. Um, so, so when we build these models for the translation side, uh, we actually make them domain specific. So, for example, we work in semiconductor, uh, you know, tooling. Uh, as you may know, um, the, the you know a, 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 a new plant today is on upwards of 30, 30 35 billion dollars, right? Uh, all depreciated. Um, so, when you make these tools, right, the term very sound very simple, but they cost 20, 30 million dollars a piece, and you develop the process through through that. Right, um, that process development is both science and art, and sometimes some of us call it voodoo. Right, right, right. You, you do this, and you sort of do the copy exact in 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 you know Beaverton, Oregon, and then you shift it over to to Phoenix, uh, Arizona, and it doesn't work. And 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 why? Just don't ask me. Just adjust the, you know, the the argon gas you know, by ten percent up. So so you know, combining a lot of this knowledge that would otherwise, is is not in the data. It's it's just the years of experience that that the domain expert has. And and to use your term, you un- ensemble at the end. You know, machine learning models. At the end of the day, you can think of is that what they predict is a bunch of probabilities, right? You show an image of something that looks like a cat um, and they say, well, you know, inside the, 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 you know, after the, the neural network has done its work is, is a bunch of outputs. It say, this is a cat, but with probability 60%, a dog with probability so on, and, you know, very unlikely to be a tank. And then it does what's called, you know, a, a soft map. That is, it picks the most likely one. It says it's a cat, but these probabilities before they are output, can still be adjusted by other models, right? And a model, let's say, that comes from a human that says, I know, you know, let, let's say you're sampling these things, and I know that that did not come from cats. It, it's anything but cat. And so it will clip that probability, it will multiply with it, and then say, okay, the cat is, not, is impossible simply because of human knowledge or something. And so it will predict dog instead, and that turns out to be more correct. Which would it would not be correct if it were not you know ensembled with with this external knowledge, right? So to use the Mardi Gras example, which was only like a week ago, that's when we're recording this, would be if you if you rented a car and you never left the city of we'll say New Orleans, right? 
and it looks like your your car hit got hit by a deer or yeah clearly exactly i'm not a wild right i'm not a wildlife expert but i'm guessing that inside the city of new orleans there's not a lot of deer running around the roads okay i mean that makes sense so it sounds like what you're doing is you're not just using ai to create decisions but you're also kind of embedding judgment like human level judgment into these models is that kind of an accurate assessment I think, yeah, human judgment and the technical term is priors, right? There's right. prior knowledge even before you come upon that image that I know about this problem that you should probably take into account. And of course, the holy grail is that eventually we'll incorporate all of possible knowledge into one huge model and it'll have all that, right? And we're sort of, you know, 1% there, you know, what right. you see in ChatGPT, and you start saying, hey, it knows these things. But when I talk to it and I say, you know, how, you know, what is the absorption rate of, you know, that mixed dichlorosiline work, you know, with selective epitaxial de- uh, deposition of silicon, ChatGPT says, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, right? Right. Or worse, it'll... Or worse, right. it'll give you the wrong answer, right? Because, you know. Exactly, exactly. Um, that's yeah. actually a concern, too. Um, which is funny because um, um, if you ask it, like, you know, it knows some people, right? So it actually, it actually, I actually looked myself up, right? Like, I guess it's the, uh, what they used to call that ego surfing or ego Googling or whatever, apparently works with ChatGPT. So it thinks I'm an accomplished, it, it knows that I'm a technology professional, podcaster, all that stuff. But it also thinks that I'm an accomplished photographer and musician, which I did not know that about myself. Uh. (laughs) That's a process called interpolation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Meaning uh, you you can think of these neural networks as very good at interpolating, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. um, uh, You know, uh, what it learns is a, is a function, right? Between Mm -hmm. different points. And then, and then when, when, when you give it enough data, uh, it'll learn that, but it'll interpolate between those data points. Interesting. Uh, which is which is great, but it's also very bad, right? It's great for generative creativity. You know that that's why you can now say, type in a few words, um, and and then it'll generate the, the image, right? Uh, a, a new creative image, uh, but it's also going to be interpolating realities, right? <laughs> so you can think of reality as individual points in in this curve. Uh, if you go off that point, it is unreal. But but ChatGPT or these language models will happily interpolate between them, so it's just sort of saying it's it's sort of somehow reasonable that you're a, a great uh, professional f- photographer uh, <laughs> in, in that in that reality that it has constructed. Interesting. Um, I, I find the whole that whole kind of the edge cases here, not not the weird stuff that you're seeing journalists talk about. Some of the interactions they've had, because that's creepy. But there's kind of like this interesting, like, well, you know, where did it think I'm an accomplished photographer? Right, like, right. You know, like, where did that come from? Like, is it yeah. is it also colliding? Because there is a guy with the same name as me who is a like a guitarist for some like indie band um, somewhere. Like, you know, how much of it is conflating him with me? And I, I just, it, it's just kind of the yeah. you know, you're it's an engineer. Reality, right? Right, right. Like. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, and, and um, I think what we're seeing is, you know, artificial confusion as much as artificial intelligence. So I, I had a question because I was pondering this the other day, which is kind of sad. I ponder these things. Uh, <laughs> but um, one of the things you said is that we have a small data problem inside of uh, industrial AI. 
what does would synthetic data help help with that like you know simulating these machines uh, for millions uh, of years that, that's one of that's one of the solutions um so you know the, the whole field is called data augmentation data generation and so on and we do use human knowledge to do data generation as well uh, so, for example, in the case of automotive cybersecurity, right? Uh, a lot of people don't know that there's a there's an act uh, there's a, of Congress that's uh, called the Spy Car Act, uh, security and privacy in your car. I, you know, these people like to make acronyms, clever acronyms out of, out of everything, like the Inflation Reduction Act, right? <laughs> um, uh, but it, it it requires that. I, I think it's 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 pretty. Um, uh, intelligent I, I would say it requires that by 2024 or something like that all cars that are uh, you know sent to the road must have at minimum an intrusion detection system because cars are now connected right uh, and and they were not built to to, uh, to to assume that like your car my car is easily hacked otherwise um, so so then you know we were engaged in a project to to use machine learning so that it, you know the idea is that we would learn uh, as opposed to just a set of rules and then you know you send the car out and and, and the 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 threat vector changes um, then the question is how do you but the cars are not on the road there's nobody attacking it how do you use machine learning because machine learning assumes that this has happened in the past well uh, so to, to sort of overcome that problem you engage a bunch of you know what we call white hat hackers right and say well how would you attack it Right, and and then based on that, use machine learning itself to mimic those so-called experts, and so use that to generate the the attack vectors, um, and and simulate these things, and then build machine learning models to fight against that. Interesting. Interesting. I think it's uh it's fascinating to see kind of that that evolve. I mean, my aha moment was when the um, some folks were using Grand Theft Auto to teach uh, self-driving algorithms, which I thought was just a fascinating thing. They, they've since built their own driving simulator, but just for that topic. But it's just it's just fascinating that synthetic data, in some cases, um, is not just adequate, but in some cases, better. It just mm -hmm. blows my mind that 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 we're at that point. So. The challenge with synthetic data is that it requires that you so so it is good in many cases, the cases where it's insufficient, uh, you know people talk about digital twins and so on right and I, th I think you know when taken too far it's uh, it's misleading. Um, digital to twins as sorry digital twins as, as you know as saying showing the uh, the sensors and 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 reader readings that you otherwise would not have surfaced in the first place. I think it's, that is extremely useful. So that's sort of seeing things that are there, but digital twins where they can predict failure, that is at at this point a pipe dream, uh, because we don't have the physical models for all of those things, but. In the meantime, we do have human experience that we can leverage, right? Sort of, you know, the, the human brain today is very good at accumulating years of experience and somehow, you know, combined with very precise math, but also intuition to, to predict these things. Uh, but, you know, an explosion, you know, in, in a car's engine or a plane's engine is a complex, you know, result of a lot of other various events. And to 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 build a world model that can predict all of these things, and call that a digital twin, 
um, is, you know, can be sort of a dangerous uh, concept if you say that's how you're going to solve uh, that problem today. No, that's a good point, because at what point do you what point is the simulation accurate? And for kind of these, uh, I know, strictly speaking, it's not a black swan event, but for black swan events, you don't have enough data to say, like, that's a realistic simulation or not. I mean, that that's right. That's I mean, that's kind of like the the sharp edge. Sounds like that's a very sharp edge on on synthetic data and simulations. Mm. But um, but that I mean, that's it's, it's just fascinating to kind of see how this is evolving. Um, and, you know, industrial AI I hadn't really heard of that until until I read your your uh, description in LinkedIn. I thought that was interesting. Like, what exactly is industrial AI? And, you know, do you. But what do you see the future like the next and the future is notoriously hard to predict. But like, where do you see um, where do you see this going kind of near term? And you said something interesting. And I also, these are two questions. Sorry about that. Um, too much coffee today. Um, do you think we can mathematically kind of model intuition? Because that does seem kind of on one hand, kind of what you're doing, sort of. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I'm going to give you the quick answer. So, so uh -huh. Koi, and then I'll sort of break it down. Uh, my, the way I understand your question, my answer is definitely yes. Okay. Okay. And then, so, so we, we sort of break that down. And I, I don't say that as some kind of Silicon Valley techno optimist and say, okay, technology will solve everything <laughs> kind of thing, right? Uh, <laughs> if you we want to break down how, how much we've, I, I, I referenced how we've broken democracy. So, right. Um, uh, but if you think about, you know, let's 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 break down these terms that we seem to toss around, as though we truly understood what they were, right? What is intuition? What is creativity? You know, what is initiative and so on? That we we'd like to to say these terms are like somehow uniquely human. But let, let's intuition, right? Um, intuition is a way of describing, in my mind, a process where somehow you know something, but you don't quite know that you know it, right? And then at, at some point, it just sort of comes out and say, I, I believe it's, it's something like this. In other words, it's like you, 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 you're expressing some knowledge, but you can't quite explain it, right? Uh, that knowledge is somehow embedded, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm using term that sort of slowly takes us back to what happens inside a neural network. Uh, if, if defined that way, you could argue that that neural networks, you know, the larger they become and the more data they have, does possess something we call intuition, right? That is, uh, it's not, if, you know, in, in fact, for neural networks, we're, we're actually complaining about that as a problem. So it, it gives me an output and the output could be a decision or a whole bunch of sentences and so on, but it cannot explain to me how it arrived at that output, right? And there's a lot of efforts to say, okay, let's let's reverse engineer that 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 process. But to me, that's that's trying to solve intuition, if you will, right? Saying, hey, I don't want I don't want this neural network to input something intuitive. I want it to, you know, ex explicitly explain everything. And sometimes there is there's nothing on the other side inside our brains or inside the the deep network is what we call representations right uh it turns out knowledge is not 
you know, it's not the way we've built a von Neumann machine where we say, okay, there's a sentence that, that represents a fact or, or some relationship in the database. It's actually represented as weights inside a neural network, uh, much like our own brain. So, so I think, I think if you define it that way, uh, then, then I, I think it, it is possible that, to say that there is emergent intuition in these machines that we're building. Interesting. That is that is a very profound answer. I, I like the fact that you provided a short answer and a and a profound answer. Uh, spoken like a true engineer. Um, so you've been in the Silicon Valley sphere for a while, right? Um, what strikes me, and I, I always wanted to ask, kind of like someone who who who's seen kind of this much history in his Silicon Valley. Now that technology is on the radar of regulators, more so than I think it's ever been, do you think that is overall a good thing for innovation or a bad thing for innovation? Or is innovation not the sole metric we should be focused on? That, that, that is one of the most controversial issues on, 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 on Silicon Valley Twitter right now. Right, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, again, I'll give you a, a quick answer, and then I'll break it down. I, 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 it's a matter of opinion, I, I suppose, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because there are pros and cons. So my opinion is on the side of yes, right? Mm. And it's qualified yes because you know anything can be taken to an extreme, right? Right. Um. Um. But uh, what I, what I, you know, if if we think about yes or no, uh, we got to think about it in context. And, and you're absolutely right. This is an observation I myself have made, which is, um, let, let's call it AI, right? Uh, unlike any previous generations of, of technology, you know, rise, it has received scrutiny, attention, almost sort of sooner than, than, than anything we've seen, right? semiconductor, internet, mobile, and so on. And then we have to ask the question, why is that? Is it mostly because of the times or is it also because of the technology? And I, I think it's a, it's a combination of both, but I think more the latter, right? Like never before have we had, you know, this is what I tell, you know, software engineers either work for me or that I mentor. And I said, look, when I was writing those lines of code, you know, we go back to punch cards uh, or, or even, you know, I, I was I was working on the conversion of, of uh, Xerox XNS to TCPIP, right? Uh, never would I have thought that a line of code that I write would affect more than a few thousand people, right? Uh, an engineer at Google or Facebook today, that line of code could affect a billion people. Mm. So, so the scale of the of the impact is not so much what the power of technology is one thing, right? But the ability for it to go out, you know, and affect a billion people. ChatGPT, as we just said, you know, reached a million people in five days. Uh, so I think it, it reflects the reach of technology. And so I think it is appropriate that we should ask the question, hey, uh, you know, when Christopher was starting out, you know, he, he could probably do limited damage. But when Christopher <laughs> is doing something today, we should right. probably watch him a little more closely or, you know, ask him questions a little earlier. I, I think that's fair. I think it's even necessary. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. It's, um, I, I mean... I remember a time when hardly anyone cared about what a pro an individual programmer did. And I think you kind of encapsulated, I always wondered, you know, why was that? And I think that the, the level of impact an individual can have 
like you said at the time, was much smaller than yeah. you know somebody now could have. And that 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 is a with great power comes great responsibility. You know the Spider-Man quote. I think exactly. I think that that does that comes with it. Um, all right. So at this point, uh, we're going to switch to the pre-recorded, the pre-canned questions, uh, not the pre-recorded questions. But um, so, how did you find your way into this into this space? Did you did you find the AI life, or did the AI life find you? Ah, it's always a combination of both, right? So, mm-hmm. so uh, <clears throat> believe it or not, all my life up to the point of my PhD, I knew I wanted to be a professor. Mm-hmm. And I, I was a professor. I, 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 uh, I had worked at Intel, Xerox, HP, and so on. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, when the opportunity came after I completed my PhD, there was a new university uh, that was being built in Hong Kong. This was 1992, uh, the Hong Kong University of Science Technology, and 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 I was one of the founding faculty members there. And so oh, that. Wow. That that started my my journey in academia, and I started I, I founded the computer engineering program there, and and so on. So that's sort of the the, the academic side of of uh, of AI, if you will. Uh, but but the other side is my uh, let's call it my big data adventure in this context uh, was when I I came back and I, I joined Google and helped launch Gmail and Google Apps and so on and. And that was when I saw, I, I would say that was the largest scale I have ever worked at and since, right? Um, and saw machine learning operating at scale, you know, mostly for good at the time, like, you know, you know, fighting spam and, and so on. And so when I left Google, I started a, a company that, and that was essentially the same journey as now. That company, you know, trafficked in at the time, 2012, when I said it, nobody understood what the hell I was saying, like big data slash machine learning. They were still grappling with big data. What is machine learning? Uh, and and I, I remember there was a podcast that I did with uh, Andreessen Horowitz, where I said the reason for big data is machine learning. And and that was very controversial, right? Right. <laughs> <Big data laughs> <as well. laughs> um, so then the company was acquired by Panasonic. This was 2017. And, and that's when the AI aperture sharpened to industrial AI, because we had to make, we make this work for, for the giant, this 250,000 person organization. And we did global sort of went around and quote unquote, you know, sprinkled AI on various <laughs> processes and help with revenues and so on. And that's when we ran into this very interesting challenge, which, which you know, I, you can hear from, you know, I, I love these challenges, right? You know, it's, it's impossible that I want to work on it. Um, uh, how, how do we take this really, these very large impactful, it's a $25 trillion industrial economy, and yet it is largely absent in, in the minds of Silicon Valley, right? Because uh, so I, now I like to say that in Silicon Valley, we're actually working on the low hanging fruits, right? The easy stuff, right? The stuff where there's a lot of data, right? Language translation turns out to be easily solved because you got enough examples. But when you have this small data problem in, in, in an industry that really matters, right? Even geopolitically, right? Uh, right. Semiconductor and so on. And, and there's so little attention paid to it, uh, you know, so, so, so anyway, to answer your question, I think it's a combination of, of uh, what is it that, that they say luck is preparation opportunity combined, right? 
Right, right. No, that's, that's a good answer. So what's your favorite part of your current job? Um, favorite part of my current job? Um, well, as CEO, I do many things. But I, I would say um, really the technical challenge that, that directly connects to the business. So, so I'm, my role is still very much chief product officer and chief technology officer you know, in, in our startup. And so it's, it's very... It's very fun to talk to customers, right? And and hear their problems and sort of reducing it to a familiar form and then saying, okay, if we apply our technology this way with you, you know, can it solve the problem? And so that ideating, that the process is called product market fit, right? All the ideas that I talk to you about are not product, right? They are technology. But when, you know, how do we articulate that into a product that people can solve people's problems in the next six months? Uh, I, I think that's probably the the, the the most fun part of the journey, and, and that's my job. That's cool. Uh, so we have uh, three complete this sentence. Uh, when I'm okay. not working, I enjoy blank. <laughs> I enjoy doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel I feel fortunate when I can do nothing because I'm right. I'm, yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes when you're doing nothing, you get the best ideas. That's right. You know, like that's just nothingness is sometimes I, a great I mean, thing. I enjoy walking. I enjoy swimming and all that. But I, I think I think there's there's some there's some value to just that downtime when you know. My wife tells me she understands me better than that that she I understand myself. She says, "You deal with people every second of every day, right? This conversation gonna okay. You need time to just do nothing. Just be by your by yourself." Uh, I can relate. Um, I think uh, the coolest thing in technology today is blank. Well, clearly what I'm working on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say it is it is very cool. And I think that yeah. one of the things is my oldest is going to be within three years uh, able to drive. And I had this fantasy maybe a couple of years ago that, oh, he'll never need to learn to drive because it'll be self-driving cars. But I think I have a better appreciation for um, not just the engineering aspect of what it would take to build a fully self-driving car, but just kind of the ethics around it and kind of the the, the small data problem, right? You know, and And I think that there's a lot more, I think we're still years away and I don't think it has anything to do with, you know, number, the raw processing power. I think it's it's the small data problem for one, and just all sorts of things you, all sorts of things that come from good judgment. That you know, like you had said, that that humans are just really good at it right now. You know, That's that right. intuition. You know, I think that is giving me an appreciation for this is not just an engineering problem. That's right. Yep. Yep. Like I said, it's, uh, there's a term that they even use in semiconductor industry, voodoo. Voodoo, yes. I hope I hope I'm not offending anyone by, by using that term you know, that actually in some weird way, but but that that's what people actually you know refer to. Just just do right. this. <laughs> right. There is that kind of that you know je ne sais quoi. Like we don't know what it is. It is there. Um finagle, I've also heard it called the finagle factor. That's another thing I've heard it called. Right, right, right. Um so uh last of the um fill in the blanks. I look forward 
to the day when I can use technology to blank. Hmm. I I think I think I you know not, not to get too profound, but uh, we our company actually has a purpose, right? Uh-huh. I can talk I can talk to your ears off about why I think that's important, uh, but our company purpose is to elevate humanity through AI, right? Uh, so, so I, when I when I hear a question like this, I would think about it in that context, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not so much I can use technology uh, to you know drive me around, you know. Uh, I mean that's already happening to, to, to some degree, you know, incrementally and so on, right? Uh, but uh, maybe I hope for the day, right? Uh, be, because I am in the camp. I'm not an alarmist, but I I do think because of our our impact discussion earlier that if we're not careful, uh, this could this should, this could go sideways and, and fairly quickly. Right. So so hopefully, you know, I look I'm, I, I want to envision a future where where technology and AI in particular is actually elevating humanity uh, and, and the, you know, the, the forms that take can get very specific and people can disagree on it. But but uh, more in the direction of eleva- elevating us versus um, uh, for example, uh, it, it can, you know, things like defects, right? I, I've said uh, you know, one of the biggest, you know, some of us techno techno optimists, they don't worry about those things. You know, humans will just will just adjust. We've always, you know, adapted. Um, but I, I've said that one of the most disturbing things about defects is then it's not that that they fool us, but that they enable us to fool ourselves. Right? Mm. Uh, and then you know, we humans are, are very very good at that. <laughs> Uh, it's happening in real time, right? So anyway, I, I, I would like to envision a, a, a future where it's elevating us instead of uh, dumbing us down or allowing us to to lie to ourselves. Interesting. That is very aspirational. <laughs> yes. And, <laughs> and that's I like why it. It's a purpose statement, right? You can I never like it. Yeah. That. yeah. Um, so share something different about yourself. Uh, remember, it's a family podcast. Hmm. Well, but maybe quite. Sing- I came to the country as a refugee. Oh, right? really? I was, uh, yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, so 1980, you know, we were Vietnamese refugees and very poor, you know, east side San Jose, uh, and and but very fortunate that that we ended up there, right? Right at the right. beginning of the PC revolution. So, so the the fact that you know, it's, I guess it's a double-edged sword, right? It's. Uh, Looking back, only you know when you're going through it through it as a child, you don't you don't see it the same way. <clears throat> but you, when you right. think about your own child in that situation, like, oh wow, okay, <laughs> that's tough. right. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, being in the valley, uh, pretty much at the right place, right time, and 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 you know, being a hacker, you know, getting in into all of it has been a very uh, fun and rewarding uh, journey so far. It's got to be an interesting place to grow up, um, the valley, and 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 I just. The, you know, kind of like the little things, you know, yeah. you know I, I grew up in New York City that has its own unique flavor, too. But like the the industry in New York is primarily banking and media. Right. So like that's mm-hmm. a different it's a different vibe. But it, like as somebody who was interested in technology as a kid, like it was not really like on the radar of most most normal That's people right. around me whereas i get the impression in silicon valley it's like completely the opposite like, right. just, like a lot of things that we think is cool is all sort of only cool after the fact right like for example, right. intel 
as an intern, I worked, I got to work with Andy Grove, for example. Oh, wow. I mean, it was, yeah, exactly. Wow. But then back then. <laughs> right. He was just you know, Andy. Who, who's, like, Andy who's, who's Andy Grove, right? Right. Uh, or, or I got to, to work on, on the, you know, Unicode. Uh, you know, if you look at the Unicode book 1.0, my name is in there. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and, and at the time, you know, I, I, you know, I worked on the Vietnamese implementation of it. And, and, you know, nobody cared about Vietnam and nobody cared about Vietnamese. In fact, there was a lot of limitations. But, but now you think about that, wow, the impact of that is much more important that no, nobody remembers what my PhD thesis is. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, that's... So I, I, yeah, I, I like that quote by Steve Jobs, you know, the dots only connect. Uh, what did he say? You know, when you look backward, you know, right, you right. look forward and see, see, see how they might connect. I would say hindsight isn't just 2020. It's whatever. Is it 20, 2015 is better than, I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> um, so where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Uh, probably uh, itomatic.com is, is the best okay. place, right? AI, Tomatic. Um, you know, we, you, can, you can see what we do there. And, and there's, I'm sure there's a contact us box, right? And uh, I think that's probably the best way to, to find out. You, you, you can, if you're interested in, in following me on Twitter, I'm, I'm at a weird handle called Pentagoniac, like Pentagon okay. with an IAC at the end. Got it. Um, I live near, not that far from the Pentagon. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, actually, now I moved some further away. But um, but uh, so Audible sponsors data-driven. Do you do audio books? And if you do audiobooks? Can you recommend a good one? Failing that, you recommend a book uh, for our listeners? Oh, oh uh, there's well, I <clears throat> Audible, right? Uh, yeah. There's so many, but you know, maybe one that may be a little orthogonal uh, to to what your audience. You know, the Three Body Problem. Okay. By by Liu Qixin. Uh, it's a fascinating book. I'm sure if you look it up, people will say all kinds of amazing, nice things about it. Uh, the thing that resonated for me about that book is the first few chapters where the author, Liu, he, he talks about the cultural revolution and how the family is sort of torn apart and the, the wife has to sort of denounce the, the, the husband and, 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 and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I, well, maybe I'll just share. For, for me, that is actually quite visceral because I did live under, under you know, uh, the, the the post fall of Saigon government mm -hmm. for for three years. So I saw a bunch of I saw a bunch of that. So for me, that apart from the science fiction aspect of of that series, uh, right. I think they're making movies out of it. I think that uh, the first few chapters where they talk about that is quite resonant to me. Interesting. So I'll definitely the three body problem. Interesting. I'll definitely check it out. Uh, and Audible sponsors the show, like I said. So if you go to thedatadrivenbook.com, it'll route you to Audible. And we get, if you uh, you get one free book, and then if you sign up for a, a subscription, uh, we'll get a little bit of a kickback and help support the show. So any any parting thoughts or words? Uh, well, it's it's been fun. You know, I think I think these I like these nonlinear discussions, and you know, I, I get to talk about what what I love doing at Automatic. Thank you for tuning in to the Data-Driven Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we kindly ask that you take a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is invaluable to us and helps us to continually improve and provide the best possible content to our listeners.